Thanks very much, Celine. If you can have your Bibles open to Second Corinthians chapter ten, that would be great of great um, help of help to you and as well as me. Uh, I forgot to make one announcement about children's again. There were two emails, at least two emails sent out uh, this past week, and if you didn't receive one of these emails, it's because your children are not signed up. Um, you didn't sign up uh, in the Kingdom Kids thing. So do fill one out. Uh, um, do ask one of your teachers. Um, or you filled it out, and apparently some of the handwriting was very difficult to read. So if you didn't receive it, um, please do ask Marika or one of the teachers. But let's pray as we come to this passage. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are a speaking God. And, and Lord, I am humbled as I come before your word um, to preach from your word. And we pray that as I preach, that only the truth of your word will be preached and only the truth of your word will be heard. And we pray that it won't be my wisdom, it won't be my thoughts, but Lord, it'll be your words and your thoughts um, that will bring life and fruit um, to this church. Lord, we pray that you will speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in 2007, an American theologian named Stanley Hauerwas published a book called State of the University. And he makes this very incisive and biting criticism of the state of the seminary education. I've drawn from it um, before. The quote's going to come up. It's slightly harder, uh, hard to read um, there. But he writes there, The intellectual and moral seriousness of medical education compared to seminary education, I think, can be attributed to a set of cultural presuppositions that are crucial for us to, for, for how we understand the training of students for medicine and for ministry. Quite simply, no one in our day believes that an inadequate trained, uh, inadequately trained priest might damage their salvation but people do believe an inadequately trained doctor can hurt them. Thus, people are much more concerned about who their doctors are, maybe, than who is their priest. That such is the case, of course, indicates that no matter how seriously we think of ourselves as Christians, we may may well be living lives that betray our conviction that God matters. If somebody has cancer, and they're about to get surgery. We do all sorts of research, don't we, to figure out if this doctor can do the the job rightly. Because we really believe that having the right doctor matters. But how about the church? How about our theology? How about our knowledge of God and the scripture? How is it that we take our theology so glibly, so lightly, that we don't ask questions much, We think as long as we love one another, that'll be fine. As long as the things are okay, the things seem okay, things seem loving in this church, it'll be fine. And obviously, those things are important to us. But we need to get this right. We need to get the Bible right. We need to get our theologies right. And what's striking about 2 Corinthians is how how fiercely Paul fights this battle for the right theology of Corinthians. These false teachers have entered the church. And Paul fights back, not because of his name, not because his name is on the line, but because people's salvation is on the line. 
So if you glance actually to the next chapter, take a look at chapter 11. 11 verse 4, Paul says there that they're preaching Jesus that's not uh, another Jesus than the one that he preached. A spirit different from the one that they received. A different gospel. And he says in 11.4, but how you receive it so easily. How you prop with it so easily, he says in 11.4. So he picks up, uh, he picks up his arms and fights this battle. Did you catch all the, the battle, uh, the, the, the language of battle in the first paragraph in chapter 10? He says in verse 3 that he's waging a war a spirit with spiritual weapon in verse 4. He says he's fighting with the divine power to demolish strongholds, demolishing arguments and every pretensions that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ in verse 5. And we're quick to jump, uh, jump to the conclusion that this is a spiritual battle. And so therefore, he's fighting a battle that's sort of spiritual. That he's sitting down or he's kneeling before God and praying to God. And I'm sure that that is true. That I'm sure that Paul has been praying for the Corinthian church. And spiritual battles might, uh, will be, will, will, will not be less than, uh, the, the battle that's fought in prayer. But it is more than that. Spiritual battle that Paul's talking about here is uh, against false teaching, false teachers, false claims, false pretensions of the gospel. And once again, if you glance over to the next chapter as he continues in chapter 11, verse 3, he says, But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the, serp- uh, by, by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It wasn't that the false teachers weren't preaching Christ, but they were preaching a different Christ. And this is a battle over the people's minds, the believers' minds, because we, are, uh, we could be tricked into believing in something that's not true. And Paul fights these false apostles, false teachers, with the right preaching of Jesus Christ. And that is where his spiritual power lies. Right preaching, right proclamation of who Jesus is, who he is, what he has done, and how that matters to us. In fact, once again, if you can turn uh, back to chapter 10, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is what he said before Hesney, chapter 1, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. It's a famous verse um, there. He says in chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22, Jews demanded miraculous signs, and Greeks looked for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom, whom God had called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What he's doing, once again, it's not the miracles that he's calling for. It's not, he's not arguing with cleverness of his philosophy. He's preaching Christ and Christ crucified because that is the power that demolishes strongholds. That is the power that brings life to people. He preaches Jesus Christ. He says, this is Christ, and this is what it means to follow him. 
So how we fight this battle is not majoring in philosophy. How we fight this battle is not praying for more miracles that will dazzle people. It's by majoring in and preaching and right preaching of Jesus Christ. And as he preaches, after he preaches Christ, he says, uh, if you turn back to our chapter, chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, he says he will take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. What that means is that he will evaluate every claim, every theology that's out there to, uh, uh, to, to, the, to the life and the teachings, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He will compare it. That's the standard. Jesus Christ is the standard. He will compare it to uh, that. That will be the measure um, by which he will compare all the teachings. And once again, my question to the church is then, I've done this before, but I think this is true. How seriously are we taking this battle? How seriously are we taking our theology? Do we brush it off by saying, well, as long as we do the right things, as we, as we love church, uh, as we love Jesus, it'll be fine. As long as we get along, it'll be fine. And I'm not saying that we should make these theological differences a big controversy and problem. Actually, that would be a great problem. Of course, uh, but after, uh, but um, after all, Paul does think that there is actually f- uh, things of first importance. If you look um, to First Corinthians f- chapter fifteen, he'll use that phrase. There are things of first importance and secondary importance. But I do believe that one of the, and I also believe that Shatin Church is one of the biggest strengths is our diversity in ethnicity, in our age, but also theologically. We uh, have people from all sorts of backgrounds in this church. But diversity in the confinement of orthodoxy is different from false teaching. And the world is full of false teaching. The church is full of false teaching. Atheism has been creeping in into our into churches. Pluralism and materialism have all been creeping into our churches. False teaching about the scripture of salvation of Jesus Christ have been creeping in and have all been part of the church for a long time. And the question is, once again, are we able to discern, are you able to discern good teaching from bad teaching? Paul's fighting this battle. He's preaching Jesus Christ yet again so that he can build this church up so they, when they hear it, that they will be able to say, actually, that's not quite right, is it? That they'll be able to challenge these false apostles. Whose podcast you listen to matters. Which church that you attend matters. How we do the Bible study matters. And we need to be a bit like the, the Bereans in chapter 17 of Acts. In chapter 17, Paul preached the Bereans, and they accepted the message with uh, gladness. But they didn't end there. They received the message, and then they go home. And they open up the Bible themselves, and they examined the scriptures by themselves. And we need to be that sort of church. This is why when I preach, I say, get a Bible out and open it up and and look at the passage and go home and see if what I said is true. Go home and see if this teaching is orthodox. And I don't mind being challenged in my theology. In fact, I would like to be challenged if more of you thought, actually, what you said, I didn't quite agree with. That's great because it's not just your salvation on the line. It's my salvation as well. We all need to do this. 
And may I speak to also parents especially, because we are a young church with many children in the church. And we have 50 kids in Kingdom Kids right now. And we're about to appoint a children's worker to be able to work, to make sure that your children receive good teaching from this church. But I know that they're asking questions to you every day, aren't they? About God, about Jesus, about the scripture. They ask you these questions. Are you equipped to answer that? Are you equipping yourselves to answer them? These spiritual battles are being fought at home as well. And you need to be good teachers to your children. It's in the workplace as well. People ask you questions, don't they? Because you are Christians, because, because you're wearing a little cross, and because you've known, you've, you've been known to be Christian, people will ask you questions. And these aren't just intellectual questions. This is a spiritual battle that is taking place all over the world and in your workplace as well. Are we equipping ourselves with good theology to be able to answer these questions rightly? We have that responsibility. Let's go and equip ourselves. Let's fight this battle well. But then if you're asking yourself, how do we, how do we know who to trust? <laughs> how do we know who to learn from? How do we choose a church? Well, that's a complicated question. It's not an easy, there isn't an easy answer. But let me start out by saying, not, uh, by saying what not to do, what not to do. So uh, we do not judge a ministry, minister, or a church by worldly standards. And for many different reasons, um, as I was going through the ordination process, I actually, I, I didn't say this uh, in my interview as you, you were interviewing me for my job, but there was a time where I also, almost didn't quite make it in my ordination process. Um, something they thought was not quite right with me, and so <laughs> I had to do some remedial work. Um, uh, anyway, but I think I take comfort in the fact that actually, Paul would have had a hard time making it through the ordination process, I think. You see, um, he didn't have a bold speaking voice, did he? He apparently was a forceful writer, but he came across as timid, as he writes in verse 1. And he repeats that in verse 10 again. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. His, his speaking is unimpressive and it amounts to nothing. Well, these are not a very good assessment for a person who, may, who will make his living by speaking, by preaching, is it? And we know that it, well, that wasn't the only fault that these false uh, preachers uh, were pointing to. Um, he didn't have the right recommendations. He wasn't spectacular. It is wonder-making. They could say that he was unemployed and maybe unemployable. Why is it that no one has, has paid him for his ministry? Paul, unlike these successful teachers, were going through all sorts of trials. He didn't look successful. And Carl will talk about that next week a little bit more um, as he preaches from chapter 12 and 13. But uh, these are worldly standards. And Paul says we ought not to classify ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, with the standards of each other, standards of the world. He ought not to because that's unwise, he says. Instead, if you glance over to the last verse, verse 18 of our chapter, he says that uh, we need God's recommendation. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. The standard by which that we should be judging 
is not by the world's standards, but whether that person is being used by God. And that person is preaching the, the has the right focus. Um, and he's, he will, he will uh, boast, um, not in the worldly things, but he will boast in Christ. Um, and uh, it'll show us that he's absorbed in Christ. He'll boast about how God has used Paul how he's absorbed in Christ, whether we can see the evidence of Christ working in his life. After all, Paul made his power clear by working through his weaknesses. If his speech amounted to nothing, it's only, it only reflects the truth that God uses and chooses things that amount to nothing to show his power. In fact, he will spend the next couple of chapters, chapter 12 and chapter, chapters 12 and 13, and boasting about what God has been doing. So he's not talking about himself. He's talking about what God has been doing in his life. He'll boast about those things because that's a sign of not self-absorption, not self-centeredness, but Christ-absorption and Christ-self-centeredness. It's boasting about what God has done. Everything that he has done, he'll say he's done it through Christ, or Christ has done through him. And there is, once again, I know that uh, Carl will speak more about this, there is an enormous encouragement here. So somebody, we need to say, we need to find out whether this person, if we go to a church, we need to find out whether this person talks about Christ. You know, some preachers will talk constantly about him, himself, or herself, um, people who are absorbed and, and just constantly talk about themselves and not enough about Christ. And if they talk about themselves, it needs to be about what Christ has done through that person, not about their experience, not how great they are, but how great God is. And that is an enormous encouragement for all of us because that does mean, though, that even if you're weak, even if you're small, and even if you consider yourself unimpressive, it's an encouragement because God will use us, use unimpressive and weak people to do his power. As we step, God calls us, and as we answer his call, God will equip us and use us, and we'll be surprised at how God has been using us. I remember just the, the first time when I share uh, the, the, the gospel with somebody, and this person said, oh, yes, I'd like to be, become a Christian. And I just remember thinking, whoa, this is happening. <laughs> I just thought that I, was, I wasn't equipped at all to do this, but God has used me to do that. And, and, and as we respond to God's calling to do his ministry, and as we go out, God will use us. It's, he's in the business of doing this. But I also think that in a congregation like this, the opposite, the warning um, needs to be heard as well. The false teachers were commending themselves because they thought that they were great. Because they were putting themselves forward because they thought that they were qualified. And this is a warning to us because many of us are successful by world's standards in this congregation. I'm constantly surprised by how over-educated all of you are. And so many people with PhDs in the congregation, so many people with, in high positions in the, in, in, in the government and the business world. And this, of course, I should say, did, does not disqualify you from ministry. God can and will use you as you put yourself forward. But don't make 
these qualifications, the world's qualifications, your commendations. Let your reliance on Christ. Let your focus on Christ. Let your Christ-centeredness be your commendations. And you will experience that God will use not only your weak, uh, not, not only your strengths, but your weaknesses as well. And that exposing your weaknesses won't be much of a problem because it was never about you anyway. It was all about Christ. And so let's use the right metrics as we measure ministry and the church and ourselves. It's not about the glitz. It's not about the worldly standards, but it's about Christ focusness. It's about Christ-centeredness and the right preaching and relying on Christ. And as we do that, God will produce fruits as well. So, and the third point, what are the fruits? What are the fruits? What's the evidence of true ministry, Christ-focused ministry? And this third paragraph, I think, is very difficult. Um, uh, Chapter 10, third paragraph, starting verse 12, I think is very difficult, but um, let me get at this. I think Paul starts boasting, and he talks about areas of influence and and things like that. Um, What he's saying in verse 13, that he will not boast beyond his limits, but will confine his boasting to the field that the God has called, assigned to him. And he wants about things that God has done, Christ has done through him. And when he's boasting about that, that, that field, um, it, it, uh, limits, what he's talking about is the Corinthian church. He's saying that he can boast about the Corinthian church because God had sent him there. And when he preached Christ, they were converted. They were converted. And he says in verse 14, that, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. And that's the limit of his boasting. What he's saying is, you were converted when I went. Unlike me, who has come to build on the foundation of a different pastor, Pastor Stephen and Pastor Dale before me, Paul planted the church. He pioneered this ministry, and people were converted through him. So he says he has special authority to speak to Corinthians. Unlike the false teachers who were intruding, he says something slightly similar in verse 8, that he had been given that authority, authority to build the church. And he will boast about the church, about what God has done through him in making this church, in building this church. He says he, um, that, that, he, that, that he has been given that authority. He will boast about that. What he's saying really is the fruit of ministry His Christ-centered ministry was conversion, true conversion of the people. People came to know Jesus, he says. He says um, that that he has God's commendations, and the evidence is them. Remember a couple of chapters before, he says, you are my letters of, of recommendation. He's saying the same thing here. That you should know that, that I'm the right apostle because, because of you, because you were converted, he says. And so for us, I think what that means is the fruit of right Christ-centered ministry is true conversion. People coming to know Christ. And then he adds another fruit in verse 15. Our hope is that your faith continues to grow as he continues to minister to them, that their faith will grow, their discipleship is, will grow. 
So what to look for in a church? I think a faithful preaching, teaching of Christ, but also if um, that, that is happening, people should be coming to know Christ. And our discipleship, our faith in Christ should be growing. We should be growing in our discipleship. And these are difficult to, to gauge, but we must look for these because building church is why Paul was sent to that, uh, that, that place. That's why the church exists. And once again, I'm, I'm going to quote Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon. And as he thinks about the contemporary church, he thinks that this is not happening. True conversion is not happening, and true discipleship is not happening. And so he writes in a book called uh, Resident Alien, Atheism slips into the church where God really does not matter. As we go on building bigger and better congregation, and he calls that church administration, confirming people's self-esteem, worship, enabling people to adjust their anxieties brought on by their materialism, he calls that pastoral care, and making Christ a worthy subject for poetic reflection, he calls that preaching. At every turn, the church must ask itself, does it really make any difference in our life together, in what we do? That in Jesus Christ, God is reconciling uh, the world to himself. As anybody knows, such a question is hard to keep before us. Does it really make any difference in our life together, in what we do? That in Jesus Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. This is difficult to gauge, but it's a question that we must be asking ourselves constantly. It's not about the number of people. It's not about the growth in our finances. It's not about how passionately even we sing these songs. It's not about these things. They're not the right gauge. The church exists so that people will come to know Jesus Christ and follow him, that there will be true conversion and there will be true discipleship. And this is, once again, I think every pastor's biggest fear that as they work, as they devote their lives to this work, as they preach Jesus, we look back and we think, well, we've grown in these ways. We've grown in numbers. We've grown in, in finances. We've grown in, in sort of measurable metrics. But I think our fear is, are we growing? Do, we, do people truly know Jesus? Are people truly growing in Christ? And so... We fight these battles. That's the spiritual battle that we fight. So we try to preach Jesus Christ with the right teaching. We try to take every thought captive to Christ. For your sake, but for mine also. Right theology is important. Right preaching is important. Preaching of the right gospel is important. Reliance on Christ is important. For all these things... Will, only these things will produce right, true conversion and growth in our discipleship. But once again, this is a spiritual battle that's fought in words, but also in prayer. So let's pray together.